The bachelor speaker here tonight said, I'll tell you more about him. Uh, he told me the other day he gave up humility and he took up profanity. So it was more satisfying. And uh, just so Father Billy was down in uh, the land of the lepers, California, and the uh, chairman was very concerned about the quality of the language, and he kept insisting that uh, everybody was supposed to speak, keep it clean, get it cleaned up. He's very concerned about towns, and he's given up humility. And uh, so he went to him just before he went on that night, and he said, Tom, do you think you're going to be able to keep it clean for an hour? And Tom said, you just bet your ass I can. <laughs> I'm Tom, and I am an alcoholic. Hi. Second speaker on the program tonight. <laughs> but I'm glad you had an opportunity to hear the Archie Bunker of the AA set. We moved to Birmingham four or five years ago, and I have I travel for a living. I do other things, but I travel too. But uh, at this particular time, I had an office in the Capitol Building in Montgomery, which is about 100 miles away from Birmingham. And I used to leave early on Monday morning or late Sunday night and go to Montgomery and work all week and come home late Friday night. And then all day Saturday and Sunday I was working in that doggone yard, cutting grass. Some guy had fertilized it so much before I bought the place. And uh, sometimes I'd get behind with my haircuts and things and, and uh, wearing these old clothes. Already heard about this nosy neighbor. I was out working in the yard one day, and she she called me over to fence and said, uh, "How long have you been working for the Hawkinses?" <laughs> I said, "Well, a good while." <laughs> Should they pay you well, Davy? I said, "Well, they pay me fairly well." I'd been living there several months, and I hadn't met anybody, of course. She said, well, I'd like to hire you if I could and mention a, a figure. Pretty good, but I said, well, I'll tell you what. That, that's, that sounds like a pretty good figure, but they pay me almost as much as you do, and I get to sleep with Ms. Hawkins. <laughs> I had no income, no annuities, no rich relations, but I had a thirst. <laughs> and in order to drink, I had to have money. And in order to get money, I had to suffer the indignities of labor. myself in positions that were very much beneath my dignity. I was always subject to the supervision of people whom I regarded as intellectual peasants. 
I considered the period Monday through Friday a very unpleasant interlude between drinking. But inevitably Friday would arrive. And about noontime Friday, I would begin to experience a very pleasant glow of anticipation. I hadn't had a drink yet, but already I was beginning to fly. And I would force myself semi-hysterically through those last four hours of Friday. And then finally, 4.30, blessed time. Here I face the weekend. And it's amazing how for the alcoholic, when he views a weekend prospectively from Friday, what an interminable period in time this is. Here I am, my own boss. Nobody can push me around. And I have money. <laughs> this is indeed the best of all possible worlds. So I would take myself home. I would go through the motions of having dinner. Immediately thereafter, I would get meticulously attired. And in all my sartorial elegance, I would walk two blocks, turn in at the local gin mill, send a stool, and give forth with the erudition. <laughs> Usually on my left hand was the local garbage collector, on my right hand, the neighborhood Iceman. In the middle, Einstein. <laughs> Every time I'm asked to speak, I take out my watch. Reminds me the story of the little Catholic boy and the little Baptist boy that used to play together. And they start comparing each other's churches. And they just couldn't get through to each other, and so they decided that they would go to each other's church and find out really what went on. And they went to the Catholic church first, and the little Catholic boy explained the whole deal to him, and the little Baptist boy was quite impressed. And the next time that they went to the Baptist church, and the little Baptist boy was explaining to the little Catholic boy everything that was going on. And finally, the Baptist minister stood up in the pulpit, took his watch off, and the little Catholic boy said, what does that mean? The little Baptist boy says, not a damn thing. <laughs> really, this is it's quite a moment for me, and you talk about prestige. I don't know whether there's any in Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's a moment of prestige for me to be in Akron. And that, too, reminds me of a story. Last year, I was in Louisiana when the boys first landed on the moon. And we were down there, and they were talking about prestige. And one of the fellows from Texas, he said, well, my idea of prestige would be to be 
in New York, be one of the boys coming back from the moon and to be riding down the streets in convertibles and the whole eyes and the ears of the world on me. He said, that's my real idea of prestige. Another fellow there, they, he said, well, my idea of prestige would be to be Lyndon Johnson the day that the president was shot. So they didn't have an election or anything, they just called Lindy and they said, you're it. So that, that's my idea of prestige. So they asked me what my idea was, and I told them that I would like to be riding down the streets of Rome with the Pope. There'd be a couple of little Italian boys standing on the corner. We rode along, one said to the other one, Luigi, who's that with C. Scorigo? <laughs> Jim, this afternoon, in the doctor's panel over there, the medical panel, talked about attitude. And this, I believe. I was the kind of guy that, that believed that I could do this thing. I thought I had enough knowledge and I had enough uh, training, enough insight to do something about my problem. And I was one of those people that had to go to the complete bottom. As Chuck says, I had to run out of places and things before I could see what was wrong with me. All because my attitude wouldn't change, wouldn't change. And so I'm going to tell you a little story about attitude or what I mean by attitude. There were three girls who had applied for a job as airline hostesses. And they had passed everything else. And so in the end of the examination, they were going to give these girls a little situation with a problem to see how they felt about men. So they said now, each one separately as they called them in, imagine that you are a hostess on an airliner and this airliner has been ditched in the middle of the ocean, and you are the sole survivor. And you find yourself out there floating on this ocean, and uh, you're about to give up hope, and just when despair is about to overcome you, you see in the distance something that looks like land, and as you drift closer, you see it is indeed land, and as you get still closer, you see that it's an island, and as you get still closer, you see that on this island are 25 U.S. Marines, Marines that haven't seen a girl in over a year, what would you do? Well, the first girl said, all these islands that can change, and uh, life rafts have paddles, and I think that I would paddle to find me another island. They asked the second girl, what would you do? She said, well, uh, I have always made it a habit to carry with me a little revolver, and I would have this revolver with me, and I would consider this adequate protection. They called the third girl in and says, you have heard the situation, how would you solve the problem? She says, I've heard the situation, but what's the problem? <laughs> I've been given about 20 minutes to program to you. Uh, the short version is that uh, you go to meetings, you're okay. An alcoholic when I came here. Uh, I was drunk a lot. Uh, uh, I don't think there's uh, much doubt about the diagnosis. Uh, somehow I became an alcoholic by accident. I'd gotten somebody else's disease. 
an alcoholic. You know, if I were going to pick a disease for myself, uh, smart as I am, uh, knowing everything there is to know about medicine, I would pick something uh, uh, maybe even a little romantic uh, or exotic or certainly sophisticated. Uh, I figured any dumb bunny could become an alcoholic. I uh, thought that's what an alcoholic was. Somebody was just too dumb to stop drinking. job and his family, all the important things in life. So I didn't, uh, I was a pillar of, of the community. Who ever heard of a community with a drunken pillar? <laughs> the, uh, John mentioned pills, and uh, I've taken a pill or two or three or four. Uh, Shot uh, marijuana and Demerol and codeine and uh, shot a lot of barbiturates. Uh, it's all given. That means they so in your vein. They tell you to count to ten. Put that stuff in my arm, uh, trying to get out of it. Anything to get out, to get away. I couldn't stand where I was. And, uh, and uh, it didn't last very long. And I gave it up the night that I had to put myself back to sleep three times that way. Uh, and it was very complicated because uh, I couldn't uh, have the stuff down at the office and uh, put myself to sleep down there and still drive home and go to bed. And, uh, couldn't give it to myself in the bedroom and have my kids say, oh, come on in, kid, and watch Daddy give himself a fix uh, with the <laughs> And uh, so I used to uh, keep it in my bag out in the garage, and uh, I would find some reason to go out in the garage, and then I would have to figure out how much booze I'd had and how many pills I'd had and how much Benzedrine I'd had and how much I needed to squirt in my veins so that I could... Uh, out, throw up my back, close it back, close the garage door, run in the thing, jump in bed so I could fall asleep. And, and really, it sounds complicated, but actually it seems to me my whole life was just like that. It was just so damn complicated. Uh, yeah. Even the uh, coming to AA, I didn't uh, come here. I uh, I was sent by a uh, stupid psychiatrist that didn't understand my problem. Uh, couldn't see that this was a result of a bad marriage. Uh, in fact, uh, it occurred to me that uh, maybe he did, but he was on my wife's side. Uh, he, uh, uh, I was excommunicated from society and... Uh, and I heard a few people say who is the Canadian speaker, and I would like to have gone up and introduced myself, but I'm a very humble man. <laughs> Many of you people were at our international conference in Toronto five years ago. And I don't know whether you noticed it or not, but 
springs there go underneath the ground. Royal York Hotel. That's where the conference was held, if some of you remember. But prior to the conference, there was a, an alcoholic, a practicing alcoholic, and his wife arrived on holidays at this hotel. And they'd driven quite a ways that day, and finally they arrived, and they went to the room. And he immediately said, let's go down and have something to eat and something to drink. And she said, look, I'm tired. You go down and get as drunk as you want, but I'm going to rest. He just lay on the bed for a little while, and the train went underneath, and a bed lamp came down and hit her on the head. She made quite a mess of it. He phoned up the desk, and the assistant manager said, well, I, I don't believe this. I've been here for 26 years. I've never heard of this before. And she said, well, come up and see me, and I'll prove it to you. So the assistant manager went up dressed in all of his finery. You know how these assistant managers are. And uh, sure enough, here she was, covered with blood. The lamp was in the middle of the floor. And he said, I'm, I still don't believe it. Are you sure that you and your husband didn't have a fight? And look, at the train goes underneath this place every 13 minutes. He said, it went under here. There was a rattle, and the lamp came down and hit me on the head. He said, I still don't believe it. So she said, tell you what we'll do. Let's put the lamp back. The train's going to go under there in a few minutes. You lie down on the bed here beside me. And I'll prove to you that this happened. So the guy lays down there dressed in all of his finery. And they're waiting for the train. And the key turns in the lock. <laughs> Through the door comes the alcoholic husband. And he said, Mac, what do you do in bed with my wife? The guy looked up at the drunk and he said, Would you believe I'm waiting for a train? <laughs> something that sounded like a yawn or a stretch, and he said, boy, I wish I'd have stayed home this morning. (laughs) 
and I've been I've been thinking about that all morning. <laughs> and the co-pilot, evidently, or whatever he was, said, "What's your trouble, Captain?" He said, "I really tied one on last night." <laughs> but he said, "You know, if I had me a, a double martini." In about 30 minutes with that new stewardess, I'd be all right. <laughs> and what uh, obviously was the new stewardess started running down the aisle of the plane toward the cabin, pilot's cabin, to inform him about this PA system. Just before she reached the door, she tripped and fell. And there was a kindly old lady who reached down and said, What's your hurry, honey? He ain't even had his martinis yet. <laughs> when I came to AA, I was wanted in two states and not wanted in 46 others. <laughs> But tonight you're privileged to see a Methodist Mason introduce a Catholic priest. <laughs> and the first time I ever saw him walking around at one of these conventions, I thought to myself, there but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> But to know him is another thing. I'm not going to handle any of the nomenclature of his title because he's got a title longer than the tomcat's tail here. Yes, I am. I think I'll try to read it to you. It won't take over five minutes to read this title. He's the Right Reverend Hillary Bernard Draper, OSB. <laughs> That's only a third of it. <laughs> Lord Abbot of St. Bernard Abbey and Chancellor of St. Bernard College. Now, if that ain't the title for you, I'll jump it. Now, I don't know, I think, I don't know much of the nomenclature of the Catholic faith or what some of this means about that OSB. I don't know what that stands for, but it's the highest rank you can get in AA. <laughs> Sober boy. You can't get no better than that, you know. My name is Father Hillary, 
and I am a grateful recovering alcoholic, a member of the noble Coleman, Alabama group. After such an introduction, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. I want to make it known publicly that I am undoubtedly the cheapest speaker you all ever got. <laughs> Alex even jumped when he said to me, Father, how much was your transportation? I said, ten dollars. And in fact, I haven't charged but one meal to y'all on top of that. <laughs> but thanks to the good heartedness of Joe D. and my Tennessee friends, they carried me up here. I think they just wanted to make sure that I got here and keep me honest. And therefore, it only cost me the gas to go to get on the airplane and to get back from wherever he lets me off. So if you don't get much of a talk, what do you expect for ten dollars? Before I made a deal to, to come here, I I took lessons in public speaking. My daughter has been coaching me today, and one of the things she said, remember the ABCs, Dad, always be cheerful. And C says, remember the XYZs, examine your zipper. I've checked that all out, so that's fine. I didn't know I was an alcoholic until one day I was snoozing at home, and the neighbor came over and asked my wife, can I borrow your bottle opener? She says, yes, but he's asleep. <laughs> and that really got me. I didn't know I drank that much. I'm very grateful to the Pacific Northwest Conference to be invited back. Like most drunks, being invited is a new experience, and being invited back is a rare one. I think you're totally crazy. I'm not too sure tonight about that part program and the preamble that Don read that says you got to be honest to make this program. I hope not. But between the time I walked in that silly door and reached the coffee bar, I ran into 25 con men that I'd known in this office. <laughs> and they're all sober and there's no way those bastards can be honest. <laughs> and God love them there, they said. I met every one of them in jail. I always tried to go to bed. If I had a reason, ever had a reason to drink, unless I had to drink to get to sleep, uh, then other reasons came along. And I think that uh, every drink I ever took was for medicinal purposes. But. Uh, Anyway, I drank to get to sleep. But anyway, the phone rang this night, and I had to get up and go and admit a man to the hospital with uh, a heart attack. And uh, I don't remember much about it for some strange reason. Uh, but I remember being very casual about it. And uh, uh, later on in the night, the phone rang, and I remember uh, taking the phone and saying, I'll be right over, because they told me the man's heart had stopped, and uh, they needed me badly. 
said Dr. Ward and a couple other doctors were working on him, but I should hurry, and I said, I'll be right there. And with that, I proceeded to try to get dressed, and I couldn't stand up to take my pajamas off to even put my pants on. And here, was the, here I was rolling on the floor, trying to get dressed, and trying to get undressed for my pajamas, with my wife screaming at me that I couldn't go in that condition, and me screaming at her that she didn't understand that I had to go. That not only did I have to get there and save this man, but Dr. Ward happened to be the chief of staff of the hospital, and he also happened to be the man who, a few months before, eight months maybe, called me one morning while I was sitting talking to a patient. He should have known better than to call in the morning anyway. Uh, but he called and said that he had, he had had to get up at five in the morning to go over to the hospital to pronounce the patient dead, that I had pronounced dead at three. Because the, the patient's daughter would not allow her mother's body to be removed until another doctor saw her because I was drunk. The histamine said I have a cold and that always makes me a little drowsy and maybe that's why I acted funny. And uh, she, said, she said no, she said you were drunk because walk drunk, talk drunk, and uh, that's the way life was at that time. It wasn't uh, a whole barrel of fun. Uh, it's been that way since. I haven't been drunk since the last time I took a drink. I said the mornings were bad, and, and that's just what took the amphetamines. Uh, I never took a morning drink. I would have no respect for a doctor who drank on the job. Uh, so I would, no matter how many times a night I had to drink myself back to sleep, I had a five o'clock shutoff date. And from 5 o'clock on, I would just stay up because I never, I would never drink myself back to sleep after 5 a.m. But even at that, it was a little hard to get going in the morning, so I'd often take a handful of amphetamine. And uh, I took a handful of anything. I had to pop. I, I, had been a, I was a pharmacist before I became a doctor, and I had my hands full of various colors of pills. And I was taking pills all day long and uh, lost track of what I was doing. And uh, when I was taking amphetamines, uh, my mouth, I couldn't listen fast enough to hear what I was saying. Uh, when I was in the, in the Navy, I sailed with many of your boys from the United States on a merchant ship. I served in the South Pacific and I saw many of them. You know, when I came down here, you people start calling me Cecil. Well, back home, they call me Cease. I prefer to be called Cease. And I want to tell you a little story about that, and that's the last story I'm going to tell you. Some of you people probably served in New Guinea. Well, this story has to do with you people. But when we were in Melbourne, Australia once, one of your ships was torpedoed salvaged, came back into Melbourne, Australia, and our ship was the only ship that was empty, and the government ordered our ship to take your tanks, I mean your drinking tanks, I mean your tanks, up to New Guinea. And we'd had a cargo of liquor down to, that we'd taken down to New Zealand, Australia, and we were gassed up right all the way from Canada, all the way down there. 
Because all we had to do to get the liquor was steal it. We became pretty good at that. But we went up to New Guinea, and it seems that those Japanese people weren't too happy about us coming up there, and they put up a little bit of a fight. And we got your tanks delivered. I'd like you to thank me for that. <laughs> we were on our way out, and we were coming back to Australia. And our own aircraft came out to meet us and escorted us back in. And our captain thought it was Japanese aircraft again, and he gave us an order to open fire. We started shooting at our own, at our own aircraft. And I was in charge of this big forward gun, and I was shooting like crazy, and finally the gunner officer realized we were shooting at our own aircraft, and he got a little panicky. And he took this big megaphone, and you have to visualize that he's up here, and I'm down there, and I'm firing like crazy, and I don't know what he got panicked about, because we weren't hitting anything anyway. <laughs> but he took this big megaphone, and he screamed down at me, and he said, cease fire. <laughs> And so I fired. <laughs> and I don't know what you're laughing about. <laughs> I got kicked out of the Navy and became a <laughs> practicing alcoholic and finally got into Alcoholics Anonymous and you're stuck with it. <laughs> but in order to get here, I had to prepare myself. In order to get in the shape I was in to come here, I had to prepare myself. And I did that with drinking alcohol. I had, you know, we, in the areas that I work, we have a lot of people say, I wonder what causes alcoholism. You know, he was nervous, or he didn't like his mother, or he wept to bed, or... Maybe the mule walked too fast when he was plowing, or... Walked in the wrong middle, or something like that. Well, I did all those things. Old mule always walked too fast, and I always went to bed, and sometimes I still do. But I don't think that had a thing to do with me becoming an alcoholic. I'm like old Wilson said up in Birmingham, I think alcohol had a strong bearing on it. I used to say at my late wife that I, uh, I don't believe I'd be an AA if it wasn't for her. Dad Gummidge, uh, I, I used to tell her, we were down at Abilene, and I was trying to work as a salesman in Texas, of course. And uh, I said, if you just let me keep my look in the figure, like other people, and come home from work and reach in there and get a drink, too. I wouldn't have to do all these disciplines and maybe be gone for a day or two or maybe two, drinking somewhere else. You know what she said? She said, you just stay sober long enough to buy a figure of egg, you'll find out in the Well, I thought you was going to talk on humility. He said the crowd wasn't big enough. I came into it through Al-Anon. My wife 
excuse me. She joined Al-Anon before I came into AA, and uh, said he was fighting and nagging and shouting and bawling at each other. She was really nice to me. Well, I never knew what to do then, because our marriage was completely on the rocks, you know, up to that point. And I used to tell her she was a, a, a human computer. She could, when we were having a fight, she could tell me everything that I had done wrong in the 15 years we'd been married. And I used to think, Jesus, you know, if I'm going to be married to her for 25 years, what's she going to be like, you know? And I figured I've got to get rid of her somehow. And she, things got so bad that she went to Al-Anon and uh, she came up to me one day and she said, you know, I went to a place called Al-Anon and I found out that you've got a disease. And, you know, I got an awful fright. Because I thought she'd found out where I had been. <laughs> you know, you know that isn't true. I just put it in for a laugh. I went up to Milwaukee for three days over New Year's. And on the way back, I had a tremendous hangover, and I thought, well, it's time that I quit drinking. If I wound up with the ugliest woman you ever saw. She looked like a million dollars, and the only reason I say that is because I've never seen a million dollars, and she looked like something I never saw before. I'm an internist, uh, and I, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I, uh, <laughs> the patients sit on the end of the table, and I'm standing this way, and uh, they're facing that way, and I examine their eye tears, nose, and throat, and the women have on a little plastic gown that makes them feel like they have some something on, and after I get through their neck, I drop the gown down so that they're topless, I guess you can call it, and uh, I, uh, immediately put my right hand over the left breast, and as I do that, to examine for lumps, and as I do that, I always say, you examine your breast regularly for lumps. And uh, this immediately puts it on a scientific basis. Uh, I don't know. I think the caliber, the morale of this group is a little low here. But anyway, they always stop to think, oh, I, I heard that and I used to do it, but I've forgotten, or no, I don't do it, and they immediately are thinking in terms of the idea of why they're being examined. And, uh, one day, when I wasn't feeling very well, uh, I had the flu, but not so bad that I didn't get to work. I got to work that day and had my pills and was getting by. Uh, 
I was examining this woman who was rather small and not very well endowed in that department. And I dropped this gown down and uh, I put my right hand over her left nubbin. And, uh, Line yet. <laughs> and I looked her straight in the eye and I said, Do you examine your lumps regularly for breath? <laughs> problems, but it hasn't helped me with a problem that to this day, when I put my hand on a woman's breast, I get this stupid look on my face and try to keep from laughing. Uh, it really screwed up my professional uh, bedside manner. Uh, I realize the hour is late. I guess you dummies thought that we were going to talk about the scientific end of it. The damn lucky just nubbing doctor over here wasn't a real end specialist, I'll tell you. bones to pick with the medical profession. I am a member of the medical profession. Them near killed me trying to sober me up some of them. Oh, I went to the psychiatrist and I'll tell you what they I found out this much that all the questions they asked me my wife used to ask me for nothing. You hear a lot of people get up behind an AA rostrum and they say, well, you know, they bemoan the fact that I come from a fine Christian home, you know, and I had a fine Christian upbringing. Why me? Why me? Well, I don't say I have a fine Christian family. I come from a fine Christian family. Truth. I'm an alcoholic Jew. <laughs> and that leads me to tell you how I took my first drink of alcohol. We're well, in and around AA that nobody holds you down and pours a drink in you or forces a drink in you. Well, in my case, that is not true. Because in my religion, when a boy is eight days old, they name him and they introduce him into the tribe. And it's done in a very unique manner. Now, the man that performs this ceremony, in my case, had a long black beard and a black hat and a long white robe and his tool in trade was a sharp little knife. He's not licensed to practice medicine, nor surgery, nor to give an anesthesia. So they use this old-fashioned method on me. Take an old-fashioned iced tea glass and fill it up full of a hundred-proof old Guggenheim. And I guess they used old Guggenheim. They want to keep everything among the relatives, you know. <laughs> and then his helper is the godfather, and he takes some gauze, and he puts it in this bourbon, and he soaks it rather thoroughly, you know. 
And then the godfather takes the bourbon, I mean, the gauze is soaked in the bourbon, and he puts one hand over the baby's mouth, and he takes it and he wafts this gauze-soaked bourbon gently in front of the baby's nose, and he lets him inhale the fumes. In fact, he just gets him plain drunk, you know. And right when that man with that little sharp knife says, ready, that's when the godfather opens up the mouth and he shoves that gauze and that booth and that mouth, and that's when the first drink of alcohol was forced down me against my will. And I've had a hell of a problem ever since. So you see, long ago, I had to give up something in order to get started in this way of life. You Gentiles, you know, you ain't gonna give nothing away till you find out what you have. Dr. Silver said the most alcoholics drink because they like the effect, the results of alcohol. Now that's much too simple. I don't want to drink because I like the results and the effect of alcohol. I want a much more Freudian reason than that. That's not complicated enough for me. I want to drink because I have outward manifestations of inward frustration. <laughs> or because I'm a catatonic something or other. Don't be like the three alcoholic rabbits. Three alcoholic rabbits, and I'm not talking about ordinary drunken Saturday night rabbits. I'm talking about real, genuine alcoholic rabbits. And these three rabbits were called foot and foot, foot, and foot, foot, foot. And foot, foot used to phone a foot, 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 and he'd say, let's pick up old foot and we'll go down and have a drink. So foot, foot used to go down and pick up foot, 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 and foot, 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 and foot, foot would go down and pick up foot. And foot, 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 and foot, foot, and foot would go down to the bar and they'd have a drink. And one night, foot, foot, and foot, foot, foot were sitting there and they were half in a bag and foot, 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 foot said to foot, foot, he said, where's foot? Foot, foot said to foot, 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 well, foot was here just a minute ago. So, foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, perhaps we'd best go outside and find out where foot is. So foot, foot, and foot, foot, foot went outside and they found poor old foot and foot was dead. So foot, foot said to foot, 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 she says, what do you think should be a foot? Foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, well, I think we should take him funeral home. After the funeral, foot, foot said to foot, 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 he said, what do you think old foot died from? And foot, foot said to foot, 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 he said, well, I think he was an alcoholic. Foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, do you think we're drinking too much? Foot, foot said to foot, 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 he said, do you think maybe we are? So foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, foot, foot. Foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, might as well be one foot in the grave anyway. <laughs> when I have a bigger crowd, I use five rabbits. <laughs> you know, I came down here to Miami to show off to my Jewish brethren what a sober Jew looks like in Miami Beach. And man, if I don't get hooked up with 15,000 Gentiles in Miami Beach, and if you don't think that's a miracle, ask the mayor.
John was talking about attitude. You know, I had a tough time about my attitude, and I had to change my attitude about alcoholism, and I had to change my attitude about anonymous, and I had to change my attitude about the, whether this was a disease or whether it was an illness, and I had to pl flat change my attitude. It reminds me of the story of this couple that got married, and he was a big old boy, and he was about six foot six, and he weighed 265 pounds, and he married a beautiful little girl. She's about five foot one, and she weighed 90 pounds, and they got married on their honeymoon while they went up to the room, and he says, okay, woman, take off your dress, and he's a big old boy, and he took off his pants, he says, now, you get into my pants, and she did, and he was so huge, you know, she just looked through the fly, you know, tying knot up there, and he says, oh, she says, you know, honey, these pants are too big for me, and he says, okay, baby, if you remember that, our marriage will be all right from now on. And she'd be in a pretty good sport. She took his pants off. She reached in her suitcase and got a pair of her stretch pants. And she says, okay, Smarty, you try to get on my pants now. And he takes those stretch pants, you know, and he's struggling with them. And he's big old boy, and he darn near rips them. And he looks at her, and he says, honey, he says, you know I can't get in your pants. And she says, okay, Buster. And if you don't change your attitude, it's going to be that way the rest of your life. <laughs> laying out in Jackson Park one day, which is that beautiful little park down in the quarter I was laying under. Nineteen years old, I'd left home because an idiot doctor had diagnosed me as a chronic alcoholic. And I had instructed him what I suggested he should do with his practice. And he said that was a physical impossibility. And well, I said, work on it. But you know, way down deep, I, I got that terrible blackness. I tried like hell. People tried to help me. I called it persecution. The doctors, one doctor said, Tommy, you don't quit the 19, isn't that? So you don't quit drinking your liberal for a while. I thought, God, that ought to be interesting. <laughs> I was always in pursuit of recognition, and I could just see me in the corner of Portage in May. You see the crowd at high noon. Somebody say, what's happened? They say, Tom Gooder, fella. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. Well, it never did. A few other things did. But... <laughs> My mother used to think that throwing up was a hobby with me. <laughs> I never did get the way I enjoyed it. Have you ever gone down the street with two or three friends? There's an old boy in Louisiana who deceased and knows, and, and Wesley, who's a dentist, Tom. The funniest man. He, he uses that terrible word for throwing up, you know. And somebody said you shouldn't use that word. You should say, sick at your stomach. So he thought, well, that's all right. Yes, that makes sense. And he got to thinking about it. And it suddenly dawned on him, and I nearly fell off my chair when he said this down in the cook's horse. He said, it suddenly dawned on me, I wasn't sick at my stomach. I was just deep. <laughs> God, is not the truth? I wasn't <laughs> was sick at all. I was just bit. I go down the, I go down the street with two friends. We get to an alley and say, excuse me. And I go down 25 feet, throw up, and I come back, and they say, you're not feeling well? I said, I'm feeling fine. 
I'm not like that. It's if you dropped your buttons. I've never seen anybody doing that that wasn't sick. But we do. <laughs> it just seems like a good idea. Well, there's no way you can pretty this disease up. But alcoholics are authorities on everything. Politics, religion, and sex, particularly. We are so far removed from all of those that... Now there's a timing problem I want you to know. <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare. He was, a, he was a writer of sorts and... He would call him Bill S. in AA. God, he had to have a problem. But he wrote about that, don't you know? He said that about wine. He, he said, wine provoketh the desire and retardeth the performance. <laughs> and it shows all day. But that'll make you an alcoholic. Again, see, Jude he comes along and says, Oh, hell, Father Harry, it don't make no difference. It don't make no difference how the jackass got in the ditch. Just get him out. I think Ron Alex is a very thoroughly sophisticated. Ron Alex is sophisticated. And we, we bowed at any uh, attempt to make us conform to the usual rules of society. It was uh, impossible to do it. We did this. I used, uh, I know none of you have ever heard of this, I used a little thing called Preparation H. <laughs> And it uh, affords me many hours of perfect comfort. <laughs> and I went into the drugstore not too long ago, and there was a sickly little pharmacist sitting there by the stool, and I said, would you give me a box of preparation H? And he jumped down off of the stool and very quickly said, walk this way. <laughs> And I said, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need it. Uh, like my first date, I went out with this young man. My father went up to him and said, now remember, I want her in bed by 10 o'clock, and I was. I've never met an alcoholic that didn't come to OA with his head packed full of unnecessary knowledge. <laughs> But they literally seen everything. And I think of a lady that was driving down in our country in East Texas, and she drove to the farmhouse, and all of a sudden she slipped the wheels down her car and backed up and turned into the old farmer's yard. And she said to the man on the porch in her dignified way, Do my eyes deceive me, or does that little rooster have on a pair of overalls? And he said, no, ma'am, he certainly does. And we had a tornado down in these parts not so long ago. And it blew every feather off of that chicken. And said, my wife walked out of and made him that little thing overall. And this lady threw back her chest. <laughs> and in a very hearty manner said, I've seen everything. 
And the old farmer said, no, ma'am, you haven't. said, you haven't seen everything till you see that chicken dipping over all golf with one leg and chasing him with the other. <laughs> explain all I have learned about it and what we should do about it. And every time I get invited to speak, I tell the common group that's what I want to do. And then Juby looks at Hoyt, and Hoyt looks at Juby. And finally Juby says, Oh, hell, Father Hillary, just stand up and tell it like it is. And if there are any newcomers, why do you do that? Is it egomania? From which, you know, you heard Joe. Yeah, but for, oh boy. 